I'm Dr. Mark Goulston. This is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Hey, winners. Welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from Michelangelo and says, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. Dr. Mark Goulston is one of the world's top communication experts. Originally a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years and a former FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer, Dr. Goulston's expertise has been forged and proven in the crucible of real-life, high-stakes situations. He's a corporate consultant for some of the world's most renowned organizations, including Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Disney, and the FBI, where he helps their teams become the best version of themselves. Dr. Goulston is a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Psychology Today, a TED speaker and author of nine books, including the smash hit Just Listen, which we have sitting in front of us, which has been translated into more than 20 languages. He's been named one of America's top psychiatrists and appeared on Oprah, CNN, and The Today Show. But today, we've got him all to ourselves. In this episode, we're going to get into some deep stuff. I was actually just getting emotional about this as I was preparing for this conversation. We're going to talk about the epidemic of mental health and how how to connect with those who need it most, what techniques Mark uses to get a read on people as quickly as possible, how to get a yes in the most important conversations in your life, and lessons from Mark's extraordinary career. So this will be an emotional episode. Again, I'm just warning you. Before we begin, and I say this at the start of every single episode, but I think today it's particularly important. The right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to listen to this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with Dr. Mark Goulston. Mark, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the Win the Day show. You know, that's a lot to live up to. <laughs> you think you're up for the challenge? We'll Gee, see. I'm, I'm saying, who is he talking about? <laughs> and you've had, you've had such a, an amazing career. So I first want to acknowledge you, my friend, on uh, all the people that you've been able to help and everything that you've done to advance the literature on, on mental health and helping so many people. And the reason this interview is so important to me is because of what's at stake for the individuals who are watching and listening to this show and all the people that they're connected to. In, in August of this year... In Australia, there was the death of a high-profile football coach in Australia, uh, Paul Green, passed away at the age of 49, uh, a guy who was known for always having a smile on his face and, and going out of his way to help as many people as he could. And I knew as soon as the news broke, I just I had a feeling that it was suicide. You know, you can just you can just tell. And sure enough, the next day in Australia, they don't generally like to use the word suicide in the news. They put like Beyond Blue um, at the bottom. So the next day, when the article was updated, I could see Beyond Blue at the bottom, which symbolised and confirmed that he had taken his own life, uh, leaving behind a wife and two children um, who will never be the same again. Uh, and what's at stake is hopefully preventing the insurmountable pain that people experience from something that we need to do a much better job at understanding. So um, with that sort of lens, I wanted to kick things off if you're open to sharing perhaps some of the biggest mental health um, challenges or struggles that you personally have uh, have gone through. Well, you know, there's always a backstory to people's front story. And one of the greatest personal accomplishments I've had is I dropped out of medical school twice and I finished. 
And I didn't drop out to see the world. I dropped out probably for untreated depression. And I was highlighting all my books. They were all yellow. And I, I could follow what I was reading, but I couldn't hold on to it. So I took a leave of absence, worked in a blue-collar job, which to this day I romanticize. Oh, life was so simple. <laughs> you're finished at five. You're done. You don't have to worry about anything. I, I still think of that. I dream about it. Uh, and then I came back, and then six months later it happened again. And so I sought to take another leave of absence. And I met with the dean of the school who really cared about finances. And I don't really remember meeting with him, but I think he was a good guy, but he was worried that when uh, when he was going to communicate that they wanted to kick me out, that I could do something self-destructive. And I don't know that I would have, but I might have. So I get a call from the dean of students who cares about people, students, more than finances. And he said, you better come in here because we have a letter from the main dean. And I go in there. And the letter says, I've met with Mr. Goulston. This is from the main dean. We talked about other careers, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw because you know, I was still passing everything. Mm. And I was at a low point. And I come from a background where you're only worth what you can do. That's not that unusual with depression-age parents and even, even younger parents. You're only worth what you do. The people evaluate you on your performance. And I said, what does that mean? Uh, he said, you've been kicked out. And then, uh, I'm not a religious person, but it's like I caved in and I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding. I just kept looking at my hands because I just didn't know what it was. And it was tears you know, from the body blow. And given that I come from that background, that you're only worth what you can do, imagine you're feeling that. Imagine that you're feeling pretty worthless. And he said to me, Mark, you didn't mess up because you're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So the tears from the body blow turned to tears of, what's he doing? He's being compassionate. And then he said, and even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. So then I'm just sobbing, like, what is he saying? So he's seeing the potential in you, perhaps more than you could see oh, yeah. yourself. He, yeah. and, then, and then he said, um, and even if you don't do anything, the reason I'd be proud to know you is because you have some goodness in you and kindness that the world needs. And we don't grade that in medical school. Maybe we should. And you won't know how much the world needs that until you're 35. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I, I'm looking away. I can hardly look into your eyes as I recall this. Mm -hmm. And then he says, look at me. And he points his finger at me and he says, you deserve to be on this planet. Mm -hmm. And you're going to let me help you. I think if he had said, if I can help you, give me a call. I go back to my apartment and I might not be here. Mm. And so what happened is I picked up what I call the trifecta of hope. You're worthwhile even if you don't do anything. If there's something decent in you or good in you, you deserve to be here. Mm. So he saw an unconditional valuing of me that I didn't have to earn or perform. He saw a future for me that I didn't see. Uh, in 35 years from now, they're gonna, the world's going to need you. And then he, uh, 
he also went to bat for me. He stood up to the medical school and said, we're going to give this one a second chance. Mm. And he arranged a, uh, where I would meet with the promotions committee. And I guess they were able to see something in me that I couldn't see. But what happened is I took that second time off and I went to a famous psychiatric foundation in America called the Menninger Foundation. Back then it was in Topeka, Kansas. Now it's in Houston. And, and part of it is I grew up in Boston, went to undergraduate school uh, in Berkeley, California, went to medical school back in Boston, and I just wanted to get away from everybody telling me what I should do. And I didn't want to go to a place where I had to learn another language, so I went to Topeka, Kansas, <laughs> no, literally. And, and I remember working at Topeka State Hospital, and, uh, and I grew up in a suburb of Boston, and I was connecting with schizophrenic farm boys. And I asked the psychiatrist on staff there, is this legitimate? I mean, this is not like anything in medical school. Is this mm -hmm. legitimate? And they said, yeah, and you've got a gift. Uh, I'll share one anecdote because mm -hmm. I don't think I've shared this on other podcasts, mm -hmm. but it was, but if we have the time, of course, I'll share. So there was one young man I was seeing who was mostly catatonic. And in those days, you know, a catatonic person could just stand up in the day area of a state hospital and just stand and not move their arms. And, and I was seeing him and of course he really didn't talk. And I was seeing him in, uh, you know, one of the consulting rooms and I don't know what there is about state hospitals in America, but the floors look harder than concrete. They must put something in the linoleum. And so I had this crazy idea. I don't know where it came from. I said, Oh, let's try something since he wasn't talking. I, but he was, you know, he was compliant. He didn't resist. He was just stiff. I said, we're going to try something. I'm going to get behind you, and uh, you're going to fall, and I'm going to catch you. And so I got behind him, and I said, I'm right here, and I have my hands up to his shoulders, uh, and he, he let himself go, and he fell, and I caught him. And then I went a little further back, you know, a couple feet, and then he fell and I caught him and and I, I and then I had this crazy idea and this is where the linoleum comes in. I said to myself, I've got to now let him catch me. I mean, it, it was inescapable. Mm -hmm. And so I said to him, and I remember I'm standing in front of him, his arms are next to his side. And I said to myself, you're going to die. You know, you're going to fall back, you're going to catch your, and, and you're going to crack your head on the linoleum, but you've got to do it. And so I'm there, I'm standing, I close my eyes, and then I just fall backwards. And again, he's someone who doesn't lift his arms. Mm -hmm. He lifts his arms up and he catches me. I don't think I drop more than four inches. And I open my eyes and I looked at him and I looked into his eyes and I saw life. I saw a sparkle of life. It's mm. incredible. You know, so, um, and I want to say something about listening because I've been thinking about it and why it's so important. And it's not because I wrote a book on it. But what I realized is when you're with anxious people, they're already overwhelmed. Mm. And you say anything to them, you instruct them, they don't have room for it. 
because they're anxious. They're just trying to manage their anxiety. And when you check off a list, they'll be compliant because you know, you're the doctor, you're the psychologist. And, and so they don't have room for you when you're talking to them. And then a person who's depressed, it's not so much they don't have room, but they're stuck in, nothing's going to work. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to work. Uh, uh, no matter what you say, nothing's going to work. I'm locked in here. And I think what I realized is that is why listening to them, if you can get them to open up, creates space in their mind for you. And I mentioned something before we started. I had three anecdotes I wanted to share. Mm -hmm. And the three were when I – the first one involved listening into someone's spirit. And I'm not spiritual. Uh, Listening in – the second is listening into someone's eyes. And the third is listening into someone's souls. So the listening into someone's spirit, I remember, um, I think when I uh, came back from from Topeka, you know, I started back at medical school, and we were on rounds at a veterans hospital in Boston. And rounds means, you know, the medical students, and there's an intern, there's a resident, there's an attending doctor, there's specialists. And we were outside someone's room I'll call Mr. Smith. I don't remember his name. And everybody's bantering with, uh, Mr. Smith needs surgery. Mr. Smith needs chemo. Mr. Smith needs more tests. And I'm just watching saying, wow, I hope I can last now in medical school. I mean, I know I'm going to be a psychiatrist, but this is overwhelming. And they're all bantering, and they're outside the room in this veterans hospital. And... uh, And the nurse comes over to our group and says, didn't you hear Mr. Smith jumped from the roof last night and he's in the morgue? They all go quiet. They didn't know what to say. And here's the listening into spirit. I heard a voice as clear as yours saying, maybe he needed something else. It's clear. And so that was one anecdote. Mm. And then the other anecdote occurred when I think I was towards the end of my training at UCLA, and I was called upon to go visit a patient and okay putting his arms and legs in restraints uh, because he was pulling at his IVs, he was kicking the bed, he had a respirator tube down his throat, he was pulling at that, and uh, his doctor's paged me and said, we put his arms and legs down and you need to go up and okay the order and okay the order for the tranquilizer. So I go in there and we'll call him Mr. Jones. And his eyes were as wide as saucers and he had the uh, respirator tube in his mouth so he couldn't speak. And he's going, "Uh, uh, uh, uh," and I'm thinking, what is he talking about? I said, what is it? Uh, uh, uh." And then I put a pencil in his hand, which was in restraints, and I said, write it down, and he just scribbled. I couldn't read it. And I thought, well, maybe they're right. Maybe he's just you know, hallucinating. He's psychotic. And I said, Mr. Smith, uh, we had to put your arms and legs down because you were pulling at the IVs. You were kicking to get off the bed. You were pulling at the respirator. Uh, and we had to do that, and I'm, I've okayed an order for a tranquilizer, and you'll calm down. And when you calm down, we'll take everything off. And he's still looking at me, eh, eh, eh. and then I just left the room, and then, uh, but he's looking at me with those eyes. And then a day later, I get paged, and they say, Mr. Smith, is uh, he's up, he's off the respirator, 
He's off his restraints. He's seeing up in bed, and he told us to page you. So I go up there. I go into the room, and his eyes are not wide as saucers, but his eyes were looking into my eyes like my eyes are looking into yours. And he grabbed onto my eyes with his eyes, and he said, pull up a chair. And he seated me with his eyes, and I couldn't unlock from his eyes. And he said to me, what I was trying to tell you is a piece of the respirator tube had broken off and was stuck in my throat. And you do know I will kill myself before I go back to that. Do you understand me? And he just kept looking at me. And I just did like you just did, except I couldn't pull away. And I said, so sorry. I understand. So that was listening into someone's eyes. And then the third, which is something I think you've heard about, is uh, I, one of my focuses was suicide prevention because I've, I've been blessed to have eight mentors. They've all passed away. And the first one was the dean of students. And the, and another, the second one was in my training at UCLA, a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. <clears throat> and he was one of the pioneers in suicide prevention. I mean, he... If you look up his name and his Wikipedia, it's he was one of the leaders in the field, and uh, and he would see suicidal patients who were still uh, in UCLA and they needed to be discharged, but they were still suicidal, and the residents didn't want to see them, mm. and so he'd go up to a consultation, he'd call me, and it was always the same call, Mark. This is Ed. I'm with this handsome young man. I'm with this lovely young woman. They're in a lot of pain, Mark. You can help them, see them. And then he put them on the phone, and then they could be discharged. So one of these people I'll call Nancy, she'd made three suicide attempts in the previous several years. And she'd been in hospitals every year. And you could stay for six weeks back then. It wasn't the way it is now. <clears throat> and... Uh, and I was seeing her as an outpatient for about six months, and I didn't think I was helping her. I was seeing her a couple times a week. Uh, but that was the longest she'd gone without a suicide attempt or going into a hospital. But I didn't think I was helping her. And uh, and there was one Monday where I was about to see her, and in the weekend just before, I was moonlighting at a, a state hospital in Los Angeles, a metropolitan state hospital, where I would cover for other psychiatrists. And sometimes, you know, you're up 24 hours. You know, you're just covering, you're admitting patients, you're putting out figurative and sometimes literal fires on the inpatient <laughs> wards. And, you know, you do that. And so I had been up about 24 hours or maybe longer, and there I am with Nancy. And Nancy never made eye contact. She wasn't catatonic like the person in Topeka State Hospital, but... She was always looking a little bit, you know, to the left or right like this. So you're looking at me, and this is Nancy. And as I was looking at her, all the color in the room went away, and it turned to black and white. So I'm looking at the room, and it's black and white. And I feel this cold chill over me. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So she's not looking at me. It's not rude. And so I did a neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my knees. I'm tapping my elbows like this. I'm looking at my finger to see if I have double vision. Oh, my God, I'm having double vision right now. Uh, and, and I just thought, I'm all here. I'm not having a stroke or seizure. Mm -hmm. And then I had this crazy idea that 
I was somehow looking at the world, feeling what it felt like to her. And I guess because I'm a little curious, as I was at the state hospital, I just leaned into it and it got colder and colder and bleaker and bleaker. And because I was sleep deprived, I shared something with her that normally I wouldn't. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, did I think that or did I say that? And then I closed my eyes and I said, I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she looked at me. And she kind of haltingly looked at me. And then she looked at me and she grabbed onto my eyes, kind of like those other patients. And I said, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, thank you, I'm overdue. And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. And then I reached into her eyes, like I'm reaching into yours, and I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you unless you say, you know, maybe we should try something because none of them have really worked. Um, Would that be okay? And she she nodded like, keep talking, keep talking. And then I leaned in and I grabbed onto her eyes and I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are and I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes because I don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? You know, and then her eyes got a little watery. And I think all of these are especially the Nancy episode, you know, was the beginning of my work with suicidal patients. And, you know, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm humbled that none of them killed themselves in 25 years. And I've given it a name in a recent book that uh, I co-authored during the pandemic called Why Cope When You Can Heal. Why Cope When You Can Heal. And the name I've given it is Surgical Empathy. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about mental health. And one of the things that I learned about with people who are suicidal. Uh, and if you're suicidal, you'll understand what I'm about to say, is uh, you don't necessarily kill yourself from depression, loss of a job, loss of a marriage. It contributes to it, but there's hundreds of billions of people where that happens and they don't kill themselves. But in my work with patients, what I discovered is at the end, they all feel despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired with reasons to live. No future, hopeless, helpless, powerless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless. And when they all line up, like in some dark, uh, slot machine, pointless. And then they pair with death to take the pain away. Like the sirens calling out to the sailors, I'll take your pain away. Mm-hmm. Just sail close to the island. Mm-hmm. And, and so death offers them relief from their pain because death feels their pain and says, I'll take it away. 
Are they seeing meaning in that as an option? Is that where they find meaning in in that almost well, omission? I, no, I, I think what it is is they find comfort. Yeah. Because, see, they're all feeling alone. And so what surgical empathy is, is I think when people feel that way, they form psychological adhesions to death. So an adhesion is not like an attachment. Mm-hmm. You can reason with an attachment. You can give insight. But an adhesion is like, you know, you know, when you do surgery on someone and you save their life, their organs can form adhesions, and sometimes you have to go back in and cut the adhesions. And so surgical empathy goes in and uses something we're calling radical attunement. Radical attunement, which means causing them to feel felt. And when they feel felt, they feel less alone. And when they feel less alone... Suffering that they can't live with becomes pain that they can, and they may reach out to that. If you remember the anecdote with the dean of students, when he said, you're going to let me help you, and he pointed his finger at me, something I didn't say when I shared the story, is I I meekly looked and I reached out towards his finger and I said, I think I'd like that. So he went in And he applied uh, uh, surgical empathy, mm. and uh, and I and and thank you for giving me a long leash. But but something I want to give to your listeners because they probably want something practical if they're worried about a teenager, especially or worried about a spouse. It's something we call the four prompts, and this is these are surgical empathy tactics. So if you have a teenager you're worried about. Do this while you're doing an activity. Do not initiate a heart-to-heart talk, eye-to-eye talk with your teenager unless they initiate it. They hate heart-to-heart talks. But if you're doing an activity, especially when you're driving and, you know, and you're both slightly relaxed, what you can say to your teenager is, you know, all of us parents are a little worried about our kids. You know, worried how this pandemic, the school, the masking, the out-of-school, the in-school, and all that. And I'm one of those parents. Can I just run a few things by you? Hopefully your teenager will say, okay, Dad, okay, Mom. Uh, I'm not sure they'd say no, but you know, I think you might get a, a, a mildly begrudging okay. And here's the first prompt. When you're feeling your most awful uh, about yourself or your life. How awful does that feel? When you're feeling the most awful about yourself or your life, how awful does that feel? Pretty awful, Dad. Pretty awful, here's surgical empathy. Pretty awful or very awful? Okay, already, very awful. Second prompt. When you're feeling that, how alone do you feel with it? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay, all alone. But hopefully you will have earned the eye contact. And then the third prompt is, take me to the last time you felt it. What? Or WTF? You could say, yeah, was it 2.30 in the morning? You know, a few nights ago we heard you walking around your room and, you know, and we heard you keep walking. And But when was the last time you felt it? And when you get someone to tell you something so clearly that you see it with your eyes, they refeel it. 
you know, if, if it's general, oh yeah, I couldn't have I had trouble going to sleep, they don't refuel it. But if you get them to talk it out, yeah, what was going on at 2.30? Yeah, I, I couldn't get to sleep. Yeah, we heard that. What was going on? Well, I was getting a little frustrated. And we figured that too, what, what happened? I didn't know whether to punch the wall or kick the wall or I just couldn't get to sleep. Mm. And what'd you do next? I kept looking for cough medicine, you know, maybe something that could knock me out. Couldn't find any. Kept looking for some of your sleeping pills, mom. You have them hidden. Couldn't find them. Then what happened? The sun rose. Then the fourth prompt is, I have a favor to ask you. And you're looking them right in the eyes. You say, when you're feeling that way, you're even getting close to feeling that way. I want you to do whatever it takes to get your mom or your dad or my undivided attention. Because we got a million things in our mind, and we are distracted. But there is nothing more important to either of us than helping you feel less alone when you feel that awful. Will you do that, please? So could you see those prompts maybe being helpful? Huge. I have a million questions for you okay. from, from all this. I, I thought you were taking a nap with your eyes open. <laughs> I'm so, done. I'm done. How's, all, that, how, how's that for a short answer? Oh, please give please give short answers. I, I felt like we were here for a live reading of an audio book. This was, this was amazing. It was really, really incredible. Uh, first of all, did you see a piece of yourself in the patients that you mentioned in those anecdotes and perhaps some of the other people that you've seen over the years? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there was a part of me, you know, growing up that felt like an outlier. Uh, I still feel like an outlier mm. because I, I would see things to me that was like the elephant in the room and that was so obvious. But other people would say, you know, uh, what are you wasting your time on that? Mm. Well, we don't see that. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a quippy response. Uh, and this is also, if you're listening or watching, uh, write this down. When someone says no to you in life, it doesn't mean you're wrong or you shouldn't do something. It just means they won't help you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, when we're talking about mental health, I, I just I can't believe that suicide, you know, it's so sad that it's one of the leading causes of death. I think it's 12th uh, leading cause of death in the world. Almost a million people each year are taking their own life. Um, are there any statistics or insights you can share to help people grasp the severity of that epidemic or anything that you know that the general public would be shocked to know about suicide? Uh, I, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a researcher, mm. but the statistics are quite high. Maybe the way to put it in context, um, if you can imagine a moment in your life that you didn't think you were going to get through that was really kind of painful, and you just wanted the pain to stop, and it didn't. And if you can imagine something like that going on mentally, and it doesn't just happen occasionally, it happens daily, or it happens a, a, a significant part of the day. Something I'm very excited about, <clears throat> and uh, I, I can give you uh, sort of a, a, an advanced preview, although this is going to be very private. A, a Someone who's become like a brother to me, a really good friend, Jason Reed, he's a serial entrepreneur, and his 14-year-old son died by suicide about four years ago. And 
and he felt he missed it. And some of the things that he learned is, since he didn't suffer from depression, what he learned is uh, he gave solutions, you know, because he didn't suffer from depressions. And what he realized is you have to go where they're at. They can't come to where you're at. And he shared this observation that I thought was kind of poignant. He said, when you ask your teenager, how are you doing? And they say, they're great. They're usually good. Mm -hmm. But when they say, I'm fine, they're not. And so he feels he blew it. And one of the notes that his son left behind, Ryan, was tell my story. So he put over $200,000 of his own money into a documentary called Tell My Story. It's up on Amazon Prime. It's heart-wrenching. And, and really, he went up and down the West Coast of the United States and spoke to parents, spoke to kids who had been uh, suicidal, spoke to treatment centers. In the last 10 minutes of the documentary, he talked to me at a uh, one of the top suicide prevention centers in the country, D.D. Hirsch Suicide Prevention Center here in Los Angeles. And, he, and that's where we got to know each other. But one of the things he realized is, first of all, suicide is too scary to talk about. So we've done presentations to YPO Global, Young President's Organization, EO, Entrepreneur Organization, but it's too scary. And so what he realized is we, we need to just talk about mental health because it's too scary to talk mm -hmm. about suicide. And when he reviewed the documentary, and you can see the documentary on Amazon Prime, he, uh, he said, you know, the most compelling part of it were the less than five to 10 minutes of the whole documentary when teenagers who had felt that way were talking about their pain. I mean, it was riveting. And, and he realized, you know, that was the most powerful part of it. So he created a new documentary, which he's tentatively calling uh, What I Wish My Parents Knew. And he interviewed about 10 uh, teenagers, I think ranging from 12 to 18, and it's mesmerizing. And they talk about what they wouldn't share with anyone, mm -hmm. what they definitely wouldn't share with their parents. And they, and they were all basically feeling good. And he said, well, t talk to me about when you didn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And the plan is it's not going to go to Netflix. It's not going to go to YouTube. One of the reasons is because there's a lot of haters in the world, and these are courageous teenagers. And, and if you're a parent who's worried about your teenager, you will be hypnotized. So the plan is to distribute it privately, not privately, but to high schools, and only to high schools where there's control of it, and parents will come in and watch it. Mm. And uh, and I've and I'll share it with you afterwards, yeah. but you can't share it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there'll be uh, it's forty five minutes, and then there'll be forty five minutes of local experts coming in, mm. you know, to talk about resources. But what'll happen? And when I've shared it with some parents, I said, "What'll happen is you'll watch it, you'll go home, you'll look at your teenager, and you'll start to cry." And your teenager is going to say, what's the matter, mom? What's the matter, dad? And what you're going to say to them is, I just realized how much I love you. Mm -hmm. 
And what you're thinking about is, I don't know what I'd do if you were gone. Mm. And also, when you're sullen or you're in your room, I didn't realize, uh, you know, I thought you were just being stubborn. You're in a lot of pain. And, uh, you know, I'd been in this field a long time. Jason's only been in it for four years since his son died by suicide. But I think it's a game changer. Mm. How do you how do you discern between the boy who cried wolf type thing where people are doing it for attention, claiming they need help, versus people who are actually suicidal? Um, <clears throat> there's a book that I'm promoting by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. It's called uh, "What Happened to You," and the basis of something that Dr. Bruce Perry is most well-known for, is called trauma-informed therapy. And their view is that whatever you're doing right now that's destructive, uh, self-defeating, or destructive to others, you weren't born that way. And so their idea is, what happened to you that's resulted in what's going on right now? So my approach would be whether they're trying to get attention or whether they really mean it, uh, something happened to them that landed them in that. Mm. And and if you can have a real belief that close to 100% of people are born innocent. I mean, there may be some people that 50 years ago, there was a fair amount of attention paid to, uh, to men who had XYY chromosome. It was called Jordan syndrome. And it was associated with criminality and impulsivity, you know, but but I think it's so politically incorrect, they wouldn't touch it right now. Mm. So there may be, you know, 0.01% of people who are born destructive. But the vast majority of us are born innocent. And innocent, powerless, and dependent and dependent on what the world pours into us. So imagine this. Before you're born, you're omnipotent. Your wish is your mom's, uh, you know, your wish is her command. Oh, I'm hungry. I don't have to cry. I need to be warm. Oh, this is cozy. And and you're just flipping around as a fetus, you know, you know, popping the remote control there, <laughs> and then suddenly you pop out. And I, I have a feeling that one of the reasons we cry is we think, I'm totally powerless about everything. <laughs> I mean, what the heck just happened? <laughs> yeah, you're glad I was born. I want to go back. But then what happens is we develop this dance where we're dependent on our parents. But uh, And, and the, there's a term that used to be used a lot called good enough parenting. So you don't have to be a perfect parent. But good enough parent. So good enough parenting means, you know, if your child is six months old or in a crib and they're crying, you know, you may not have to go in within five or ten minutes. And and if it's time for them to learn to sleep through the night, you know, you may bite your nails and say, "I'm gonna, we're gonna let them cry it out," and then they cry it out. But they've developed enough independence to be able to manage it. But still, you know, for a long time, imagine that what you're being fed from the outside world is uh, either abuse or neglect. Or in this day and age, 
you're being overly indulged. And the problem with overly indulging kids is the world's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you overly indulge them uh, uh, because you can't stand their being having any pain and mm-hmm. you rush in, well, that's okay when they're an infant. But when they're four or five and you rush in whenever they, uh, uh, there was a book called, I think, The Beauty of a Skin Knee. And it basically said, you know, let your kids skin their knee. It's mm. not the end of the world. Let them learn to be able to deal with it. Mm, yeah. In, in Australia, there's a movement that's raised awareness of mental health called Are You OK? I'm not even, I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but it's, it's been, it's, it's a growing movement, which is great to, to raise awareness. Um, whenever I hear Are You OK? If I was in a dark mental place, you know, which I certainly have been in, in my life many times, I've spoken about it on this show before, fortunately not for a long time. Um, but I don't think I ever would have said, if someone said to me, are you okay? I don't think that is enough for me to open up. I would have probably said something like, of course I'm okay. And deep down, I'm thinking, just shut up. I want to I wanna move you, on. You, you raise an interesting point. So yeah. here's the difference between professional, clinical, I don't even know if it's empathy, but it's being responsible and surgical empathy. Mm. So there you are in that dark place. Mm. And you go to see a professional. You don't want to be there. You know, you really like your parents to be able to do this, but they don't know what to do. So they send you to the professional and you and you feel kind of resentful of it. I'm not going to talk to a stranger. And, you know, but that stranger, especially now with electronic record keeping, is uh, often as they're talking to you, they're typing mm. because, they, you know, they, they don't, you know, they don't want to have too much paperwork. So they're saying, uh, uh, have you been depressed? Yeah. Uh, mm. How long have you been depressed? Uh, have you ever thought of hurting yourself? I'm I'm being unkind. Have you ever thought of hurting yourself? Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, Do you have a means to hurt yourself? Yeah. So that's very professional. They cover their responsibility. They do the record keeping. So that's professional responsibility, maybe a little empathy. Uh, But what's the difference between if someone says to you, are you okay? And they're looking at you and saying, you're not okay, are you? Mm. And you go, what? You're not okay, and and you're not okay in a big way sometimes. Is that true? And there are times when you're not okay where it scares the heck out of you, and if you let anyone else know, it would scare the hell out of them. And there's sometimes when you don't know how you're going to make it through the next hour. You've had some of those times, haven't you? Yeah. And you want that you want that lead in. You you're almost desperate to talk about it, but you just need the right opening, the right set of circumstances to happen. And it's like I I you know, I have a lot of really great deep conversations with with pretty much everyone, all my friends and things, which is which is great. But I was thinking like, what can people who are watching this or listening to this to have those conversations with their friends? To be able to do that, so is that the type of thing that they should do? They should say things like, "You're not okay, are you?" If they get a deep sense. Well, well you see, a lot of it. Look, I've got fifty years doing this, mm-hmm. and and so it's it's natural for me. And and when you say, "Are you okay?" A lot of times you don't want to have them tell you they're not. Mm-hmm. What I would say to you is, if you if you're aware that some of your friends or people you care about might be in a bad place, check out resources. Because if you get them to open up and you don't know what to do and you're in over your head, 
you know, you're, you're going to get too anxious. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then if you say, well, you know, you know, just hang in there; it'll get better. You know, they're going to they're going to feel like you know you, you know thanks for nothing. Mm. <laughs> so if you can, if you care about some of the your friends, just check out local resources. Uh, in America, you can call nine eight eight and say that's the new. I, I'm not suicidal, but I have some friends that might be, and and I'm trying to figure out the best way to get them to call you. Mm. So check out resources and say, you know, any suggestions, uh, you know, about what I could say or how I could say it. And one of the things I would say if you're listening in is if you're able to open up one of your friends uh, and and you get a sense that they're feeling relief, you can even say, uh, you know, our talking like this is not making it worse. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it may not be making it better, but it's not making it worse. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, uh, is saying some of the things that you've said, and I'm not, you know, and I'm not jumping down your throat and telling you not to feel that way. Is there anything about that that's helping you feel a little better, a little less alone? Uh huh. Could say, you know, I'm getting close to the limits of my ability to do this. Mm. But I think what you're telling me is it helps, and uh, and I care about you, or else I wouldn't have had this conversation. And I've even checked places, and don't worry, they're not going to throw the cops at you and whatever. But I've even checked some places uh, where I'd like you to make a call. In fact, I'll even stay here or stay on the line and just call nine eight eight or whatever. And uh, uh, and this is what they told me. You know, mm. uh, they're they're trained, they're skilled, they're wonderful listeners. Mm. <laughs> and uh, uh, now some of them may be checking the boxes, but they wouldn't be doing it. Most of them are volunteers, mm. and so I might do that. I'd give them a taste of feeling it. Mm. Uh, there's something else that I, I wanted to share with you. Uh, before the, I'll just show. Here's a business application because it led to something that's a little embarrassing. Uh, I coach a lot of people. So, you know, I coach, I mentor. Uh, I've, re I've retired as a therapist, mainly because the electronic data keeping, I refuse to be typing in stuff yeah. and all the codes. And, and plus, I want to reach one to many as opposed to one to one. So it's a legal requirement to keep records of every single patient that you, that you see. Well, it's, I think therapists, you know, because you're a little bit hesitant. I mean, towards the end of my practice, I was thinking, yeah, it's okay to keep records, you know, just to stay on t top of whatever the treatment or if they're taking medication. But, you know, if I'm keeping in the record that they're suicidal uh, or they're thinking of, of hurting someone else or whatever, um, what I realized is anybody else who wanted those records, it was not in the patient's favor, mm -hmm. Mm. you know, and so, uh, but that was some years ago, uh, but something that, uh, that I came up with was something called the seven words. So picture this. And if you're listening in and you have a company that's really stressed, you can do it in your company. I can, I can talk to your HR director, uh, or you can call me in, although I'm pretty over, over, 
I'm a little bit overwhelmed with the, what's the world's coming at me to do. Uh, but I want to share this anecdote. There was a, a company called Inc. Global, and I coached the CEO of it, wonderful Brit named Simon Leslie. And I'd done a presentation to his people. Inc. Global used to publish all the uh, 80% of the in-flight magazines. And so those magazines went away with the pandemic. No one's going to touch a you know magazine that is, is filthy or contaminated. So it's kind of gone digital, and they've been able to pivot, and and they own a lot of the uh, the airport monitors in America, twenty five hundred monitors. So, you know, so they're pivoting. But there was a point in which they were in a bad place because, you know, the main form of income were those was advertising those magazines, and and they have offices in London, Miami, and I think Shanghai, uh, or Singapore, and. Uh, and the CEO said, Mark, uh, you can, can you do anything, you know, with my people, help them get through this? And, and again, I guess, you know, going back to that fellow in Topeka State Hospital, you don't want to ask me, can you do anything? Because I'm a, I'm a, I am slightly creative in this area. So picture this, there's 150 people on a Zoom call. So it's five or six screens. And, uh, and I'd done a presentation before, so they knew that, you know, you know, they they knew of me, and but they also knew that I was a little bit, you know, creative. That's a that's a <laughs> euphemism for what it is. So picture this: they're all looking on the screen, and I said, um, "I'm going to try an experiment. I want you to think of the worst moment you've had, uh, not presently, you know, but the worst moment you've had in the last couple of weeks, and raise your hand when you're there." And they're like deers in the headlights. And then one by one, they raise their hands. And as you see the hands go up, you can feel a shift emotionally. And then I say, in the chat area, I want you to, to write down the word that most closely connects with how you felt. Anxious, angry, depressed, frustrated, overwhelmed, numb, uh, embarrassed, ashamed, alone, lonely. There was a whole bunch of words. And again, there's a pause, and then it starts to trickle in. You know, Joan, afraid. Andy, angry. Uh, Frank, overwhelmed. And it floods. And as it floods, and you look on the Zoom screen, uh, people lower their hands and they're crying. And then we get through it. They're crying with relief. And then we get through it. And I said, how many of you feel better because of that? And it was about 70, 80%. How many of you feel worse? Nobody. How many of you feel no change? 20%. And then I said, how many of you feel that you're in a group of very special people, close to 100%? I said, you're not any more special than you were half an hour ago. Mm-hmm. What happened is you shared a special moment and you realized that you were the group of really good, strong people trying to make it through a tough time. And we just flooded you with something called oxytocin. And oxytocin is the hormone connected to emotional connection. And you cried with relief. And, uh, and here's the embarrassing thing. So if you go to markgoulston.com, go to markgoulston.com, click on testimonials. 
So Simon Leslie, I love this guy. We're like brothers. He sends me a video testimonial. It's the first video testimonial I've ever, you know, I've ever received. And he sounds absolutely drunk. He's not. He was saying, I don't know what to say. That was, I don't know what to say. That, that was amazing. Uh, 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 love you. Thank you, for, <laughs> thank you for getting up in the middle. And, and he sent it to me, and it was just so endearing. I said, can I put this up on YouTube? He said, well, I do sound drunk. I wasn't. <laughs> I, he said, nah, go ahead. I mean, he has a great sense of humor. So I put that up, and then I and then I created something at markgulston.com. And if you go to testimonials, I've got over 30 video testimonials. And anytime I'm feeling like the imposter syndrome, like, have I done enough in the world? You know, maybe I haven't mm-hmm. done enough. You know, uh, like Schindler said, I could have saved more, <laughs> you know. But when I go into that thing where, you know, I, I have I done anything good? I'll sometimes go visit that page, and it was almost like your introduction of me. Like I don't know who they're talking about, but whoever they're talking about, they like this guy. What a legend, yeah. They like this guy. They can't all be liars. <laughs> you mentioned something there about people having a tough time. A lot of clients that I've worked with, middle aged, one of the toughest things they're going through personally is children of theirs who are young adults who don't seem to be motivated to want to grow and the parents don't know how hard to push them or do they take a step back? How do we stimulate that desire in people to want to take ownership of their life, particularly at that younger age, being being like a young adult? Um, and how do parents know how hard to push or, or pull back? So there's something that I uh, – <clears throat> this is – there is an incredible power to an unsolicited, heartfelt apology. And what I might say to those parents, especially if those parents saw the video of those teens, because um, those teens said they couldn't talk to their parents. Mm-hmm. What I would say to those parents is, see if they'll go on a walk with you. Yeah, maybe a walk. You can. I was thinking a drive, but go walk. And, and I'd say to my teen, I'd say or my young adult, uh, I need your help with something. What? Yeah, let's go for a walk. What? No, no, I don't have cancer. I'm not getting a divorce. We're not bankrupt, but I need your help with something. Uh, and then as you're walking, what's this about? Uh, I hate to fail. And I failed you. Um, I don't think you're lazy. I think you're scared. And I think I messed up because I don't think we could ever have a conversation like we're having right now. Because if you told me you were scared... I'd either sort of, you know, just say, oh, that's just being a kid. You all grow it. Or, uh, or I'd find some way that, uh, to mess it up if you opened up. And so I think you just thought opening up was not an option. 
and uh, and I love you. I'm sorry. Just leave it open. See what happens. Hmm. Interesting. So you're um, establishing so much of, of what you're talking about seems to be about establishing that connection, not being afraid to be to lead with vulnerability, um, which is something our, our mutual friend Keith Ferrazzi talks about a lot as well. Well, well, I'll share another anecdote, which which gives very poignant. I mean, you know, when when you spend a lot of time seeing people who are depressed or suicidal, you learn a lot about just mm. hum, humanity. And I remember I asked one young man, I said, uh, well, this seems to be helping. What helps? Why does this help? You know, I'm curious, you know, because it seems to be helping. Maybe I can recreate it. And he looked at me, he said, uh, said, before I started seeing you, I was convinced that I was a burden to everyone. You know, one of the reasons and one of the reasons teenagers don't want advice, they want comfort, but a lot of parents, especially younger parents, don't know how to comfort because they weren't comfort. And so you give them advice, and they don't want advice. They want to feel better first before they try a solution, but you don't know how to get close to them emotionally because you don't know how to get close to anyone emotionally, including yourself. And so you give them advice, and they don't want unsolicited advice because if they don't follow it, they feel like they're being, you know, uh, uh, stubborn, and, they, and they're afraid. They'll when you ask them, "Well, did you follow it?" No, I didn't do any of that. Why not? Uh, and they don't know how to say it because I want comfort. And mom, dad, you don't do comfort. You know. So uh, I asked this. I said, "So what help, helped?" He said, uh, "Before I saw you, I was a burden to everyone. I think I scared my parents." My brothers and sisters saw me as manipulative, and yeah, I think that's pretty true. And, you know, given how my life is, I'm a burden to myself. So one of the reasons I wanted to die is, why don't I just relieve everyone of the burden? And I don't care what anyone would say to me. I'm a burden. But when I started seeing you, you had this smile that was glad to see me, and it had nothing to It was kind of like the dean of students seeing goodness in me, and I didn't have to perform. Mm-hmm. It was exact replay of that. When I saw you, I thought you, you know, Doc, I thought you were crazy. You were smiling like an idiot, <laughs> and you were just glad to see me. And it had nothing to do with checking boxes. Well, let's make sure you're following your medicine. How is it working for you? Yeah. And he said, it really, I you know, I, I left thinking you were crazy. I mean, but I wasn't a burden to you, and it was like a little oasis, mm. you know. And uh, you know, and I would leave thinking, is he crazy? Mm. What is wrong with him? Uh, why does he like seeing me? Uh, and and he said it became a little bit like an oasis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So you see what we're getting yeah, at absolutely. is that, uh, uh, and I'm guessing that that unmotivated teenager, young adult, you know, I'm guessing they feel like a burden, yeah, a disappointment, mm-hmm. frustration, wish you didn't have me. Uh, you talk about 
my brothers and sisters who are more motivated, and even they don't get me. You know what? You know what is your problem? You know you're so lazy. You're so blah 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 blah. Uh, but I go back to what happened to you. Uh, but the change is you go there and you give them the unsolicited apology. You look in their eyes, and I'm telling you, if this teenage video goes to all the high schools. There's going to be a lot of parents who, when they go home and they see that unmotivated kid, they're just going to start crying. Oh, absolutely. What about for someone, maybe a parent who has had a child take their own life or, you know, sibling or a friend or something like that? How do, how do people feel like it wasn't their fault when that has happened, which is maybe the case for the parent? And how does someone whose parent might have taken their own life, how do they move on without feeling like it's the family the family curse and that's their destiny well i think the most important thing is find people who have gone through the same thing because if you're talking to someone who didn't go through the same thing no matter what they say you're going to say it's easy for you to say mm-hmm. i had a patient um a woman her only child daughter was viciously killed by a man. By viciously, he used a shotgun and her head landed in a tree. And this was her only daughter, her only child. Her husband had other children. And she was in a bad state. (laughs) She was referred to me by Dr. Schneidman. And I didn't think I was helping her. And then... I said, you know, and one of the things she shared, she said, I can't go anywhere. I can't go in a supermarket and think that I have this secret that nobody else has. And then if someone says, oh, do you have any kids? Um, And I said, you know, there is a group called Parents of Murdered Children. And the Los Angeles chapter was led by Doris Tate. And that was Sharon Tate's mother, who was killed by Charles Manson. And I said, I'm going to take you there, uh, because you're not going to be able to listen to anyone unless they've had a child who's been murdered. And she fought. I said, I don't want to hear other people's problems. I said, well, look, you uh, you know, I'm glad you haven't gone off the deep end, but we're going to go. You're going to go. And so I got her to start going. And what happened is younger mothers, you know, a number of them from uh, the ghetto, you know, would start joining the group. And they were like newly, uh, I can't call, she said something. She said, you know, uh, there is no word for a parent who's lost a child. You can be a widow if you've lost a husband, but there's not a word for what to call if you've lost a child. Uh, An English word, I'm not aware of it. Uh, Survivor, they talk about. Oh, I'm a survivor, but it doesn't get there. But what happened is uh, these young women adopted her, and she found her purpose. You know, and it saved her life. And, you know, about five years ago, I, I, I got some announcement that I didn't know that she was reasonably wealthy, but she started some sort of a 
she donated a lot to a trauma center at UCLA. And there was an announcement and, you know, a little thing she said, oh, and, and many thanks to Dr. Mark Olston, you know, I, wow. You know, you didn't have I'll to pick you that. up on a down day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put that next to the uh, video testimonials. <laughs> That's right. But, but I, I hope that helps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Here's something else that she and I came up with. She said, she said, look, when people ask me, uh, have any kids? And then I tell them, well, I once did. And then they're curious. They're like rubbernecking. She says, what do I say? It's so awkward. And one of the things we worked out, uh, and this was after she was a little, much better. She said that uh, what she worked out is that when someone said, do you have any children? And she said, no. Uh, well, I once had one. And then when I tell them what happened, what she learned to do, because they would be stunned, is what she learned to do, what, what I told her to do is take your right hand, put it on their shoulder, and say, it's okay. If I was you, I wouldn't know what to say either. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, and what happened is it just alleviated the that conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, reading people has been such a big, you know, almost a superpower of yours in your career. It's, it's essential in your work as a psychiatrist, your work in, in law enforcement. Is it more of like an empathic tendency that you have, or is there a very specific process that you have to be able to read quickly, uh, to read well, people? It's interesting. I'll, I'll send you a link. I, I spoke in Moscow three or four years ago with, uh, with a, a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and my books of four or five of my books are bestsellers in Russia, so they had me there. And I can, I'll send you the video clip, but something I've been trying to teach everyone since that presentation, and, and this is where I launched this to a thousand Russian businessmen and women. Um, and, and if you can do this every day, once a day for a week, it will change your life. And what I said is that Underneath people listening to you, they're always listening for something. And if you can know that's always happening, just being curious what that's about, without judgment, without an agenda, without selling them. So, for instance, um, uh, we'll do an experiment and tell me what you feel inside. And I'm taking a chance. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't want to blow it now. We've done okay. Uh, so underneath you listening to me, mm -hmm. I think what you're listening for is that people's trust and confidence in you to bring them value is hugely important to them. And you want to honor people who trust and have confidence in you, you want to honor them by not wasting their time. The last thing you want to do is waste a viewer or listener's time. And so what you're listening for are guests that can bring them value, that can inspire them, change their life, give them a tip that they can use, something that's doable by them. And I think you're listening for that with your guests I'm guessing that a little humor that you may have some guests who are best-selling authors, but they're awful. They're arrogant, they're stiffs, they're condescending, they're convoluted, and you're smiling and you're saying, I can't post this. 
I can't post this. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm going to tell them, but I'll, uh, you know, I, I'll try and be honest. I, I don't want to do the white lie of, oh, you know, the tech. I hate to tell you, but the technology it just didn't work. <laughs> but you, but because you, you want to honor people trusting and having confidence in you. You both are looking for people that can give them immense value, and you're also wanting to protect them from people that would waste their time. Mm-hmm. So is any of that true? Absolutely, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And even a step further than that, anything that is super valuable, I want to like it to be emphasized. And and it's easy when you're listening to a podcast or watching something to be sort of doing something else. But I don't want people to glaze over something that can literally change their life or or change their mindset or, or something like that. And that's why when people go and watch like the YouTube versions of this episode, they can see the breakout quotes and things that appear. That's like an essential thing that needs to be reinforced, at least in my opinion. And that's why we put so much time into the show notes and the the videos and all the different clips and things like that that appear. But yeah, you're 100% spot on. Yeah. And I'm going to do something since we're buddies now. (laughs) Um, uh, So if you're listening or watching this, whenever you're in a conversation and it's going sideways, instead of getting agitated, if you can drop your agenda, and this can be also in business, but also personally, and you can say, you know, when we started talking, you were looking for and listening for something, and we we didn't do it. In fact, we got further away. So can you tell me what you were looking for or listening for? Uh, you know, it may, may not be too late to save the day or uh, or, or, or maybe, uh, you know, there's someone that if what you're listening for or looking for, I can, you know, introduce you to. And, and uh, uh, so it, it's a way of flipping a conversation. Huge. But the thing that it will mildly embarrass you, but it's a, <laughs> I'm going to give you a little coaching. So there's an exercise that I uh, have developed called the Hoover exercise. and it's an exercise if you want to be 100% present with another person. Mm-hmm. And by present, it's from their point of view. And what you do is you decide, I'm going to be totally present with this person. And af- and this is how you build the muscle. So it's an exercise that you build muscle. After the conversation, you rate yourself from their point of view. And the H is, how much did they feel heard out by me? The U is, how much did they feel understood by me? Scale of 1 to 10. And you show understanding by, say more about that. Yeah, elaborate on that. Dig into that. How much did they feel valued by me? Which is, you know, you're genuinely pausing and seeing the application of what they're doing or understanding it and going, wow. Well, that's going to save a few lives. And then the final A is how much did they feel that you added value to them? You know, this thing that you're doing, uh, um, let me make a call. Let me call Australia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> let me call the uh, uh, are you okay thing because, you know, you, know you, you might be able to help them with their, their languaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would rate you as 9, 10, 10, 10. And you're not a perfect 10 on the herd out because you're, you know, there's a part of you that's following, mm. okay, okay, uh, I want to get to the next question. And that's fine. And you can get to the next question. Mm. And then, you know, you know, we're going to 
use up your electricity bill here, but <laughs> you know, but do you follow me when you're following? I want to get to the next yeah. question. It's breaking presence a little bit. On the other hand, if, if you know your audience and the questions are what they want to get answers to, then it's important to interrupt someone like me who's a bit long winded. <laughs> and it can be as an interviewer, it can be hard to it can be hard to have that balance. H- how would you rank the after all the podcasts and things that you have appeared on? How would you rate them on an average on that Hoover scale there? And um, I've been on I've been on hundreds of podcasts as well. I know for the most part, at least in my experience, people don't really listen that well. They're so busy thinking about the next question, or they haven't taken the time to research and understand their guest. And um, but your your material, I think, lends itself to probably a, a deeper conversation, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So I I I, I don't know the. Uh, I mean, I've been on over three hundred podcasts, <clears throat> but there are some. And look, I understand that. Look, you sent me. Uh, by the way, here this here are some of the questions we like to cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so a lot of people, you know, they don't know that I'm going to be this runaway train. <laughs> you know, and and when we get into it, it seems to have a life of its own. <laughs> And, uh, uh, and there's some people who will just go with it. Like, wow, uh, I don't know what he's talking about, but, uh, <laughs> I'm engaged. I hope, you know, the hell with my listeners, uh, but I'm engaged, you know, tell me more. So, uh, uh, I, I think I don't do it on purpose. It's just, it's just my nature, mm. but I can understand that people, uh, especially when there's a there's people who have a 20 minute thing. We have a 20 minute thing. We have a hard stop. We want to cover these things mm. and la da 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 da. And uh, and and I and to be honest, and those some of those people are very successful. They have big audiences. They're more transactional. They also have audiences where they're selling stuff. They're mm. selling a lot of product, and you can buy our such and such. So there is a kind of an agenda that uh, yeah, we do a podcast and we bring on guests. But you know, every five or ten minutes, you know, don't forget that uh, you can take our course, and for the uh, and for the next uh, twenty four hours, uh, it's a it's a nine hundred ninety seven dollar value for ninety nine dollars, and you know, and, and it's going away. You know, so look, I'm naive. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I had a guest on my podcast uh, the other day. Uh, Jeff, I forget his name, but he was one of the founders of uh, of uh, Priceline. Mm, Jeff Hoffman. Yeah. Jeff Hoffman. Yeah, love Jeff. Yeah, and the reason I had him on is I heard him speak and how he pivoted to philanthropy, mm. and he said one of the and he does tons of philanthropy and he's wonderful, but in this interview in a very entrepreneurial setting. You know, it was much more about, you know, how, how to be successful. But he did throw in and he said, you know, on one of my trips, I saw a sign that says, uh, yeah, you're successful, but have you ever done anything that matters? And he said it just blew him away. Mm. And when I spoke to him on the podcast, I said, uh, I wanted to thank you because I don't know that I've been that successful, but everything I do matters. And that's what I focus on. Yeah. And uh, But when you said that, I felt, oh, you know, you were talking to an entrepreneurial audience in mm. which I feel less successful than mm. most of them. <laughs> although uh, although they, they give me a compliment. They say, 
You're the wise elder that we should listen to that we don't. (laughs) (laughs) For for those who are wanting to get maybe a promotion in their career or they need to get funding for their business, just someone who wants to get a yes in a very potentially life-changing conversation for them, any tips on on that? Sure. Uh, Something I've discovered is that 90% of the world have a reverse cognitive bias and 10% or maybe even 5% have a forward cognitive bias. What that means is, so people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, they have a forward cognitive bias, meaning they look into the unknown and see it as an adventure to be lived. But 95% of the world sees the unknown as a danger to be avoided. And so, Given that many people are like that, one of the ways you can try and get a yes is, uh, so the reverse cognitive bias would be, uh, uh, and you have to develop it so it's naturally, but if you're meeting with someone, uh, 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 I'll let you, you say you're selling something, and you could say, uh, can I ask you a hypothetical question? You know, would that be okay? Because, you know, you know, I know you're used to a certain kind of, back and forth kind of thing and they'll be uncomfortable and say yeah what i said no i said really i'll ask you and you could say i'd rather not answer um i'd like you to imagine that uh that after we have a conversation uh you go to your boss and you say uh, i think we need to go with this guy i think we need to invest in this I think you need to come to my next conversation with him. So I'd like you to imagine that, you know, we haven't talked about things, but you leave and you have those thoughts. So what is it that we solve? What do we talk about? What would cause you to leave thinking that? I could just tell my boss who I spoke to you about. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so, do you follow me? So that's yeah, the reverse cognitive bias. Absolutely, you're saying, you know, imagine this is a. So here's here's another way to use it for meetings because you know, I mean, look, I got 50 years of experience. <laughs> so if you want to make your meetings better, because most people hate meetings because they think they're a waste of time, and so what you say to to your meeting, uh, like your executive team, I don't know that you could do this with 150 people, and you might try it. <laughs> But what you say to your executive team, you could say, um, uh, by, my, by the clock, uh, uh, we're going to be done in 60 minutes or 90 minutes. You could say, and, uh, and, and I'd like us to have a hard stop then because that's what was scheduled. And some of you have emergencies and I have emergencies. So I want to do an exercise. Uh, I'd like you to imagine that the meeting is over and you're going back to your day, and you each say, that was the best, most productive meeting we have had in six months. What happens so that you leave? Uh, And no finger pointing, you know, you don't want to say, uh, uh, make Joe shut up or something, or or get, you know, (laughs) Frank to open their mouth, you know, instead of talking, you know, behind everyone's back. No, 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 we're not here to personally blame people. That's something we all have in common. That's the reverse cognitive bias. Mm. And 
I, I prefer you not leaving saying, well, that was a waste of time. I had better things to do. So, you know, what, uh, uh, and, and something you can do if people are just too paranoid is you say, okay, you can't finger point, but here, post-it notes. Here's an index card. I'll shuffle them and you don't have to put your name, but write down. Uh, now you can say something like, uh, you know, let's keep to our agenda. Uh, uh, let's not get distracted. So it's preferred uh, to be private as well rather than said publicly? Uh, well, it depends how open your group is, and my guess is they're not that open. Yeah. But, you, but, if they, uh, but the point is you surface it, mm-hmm. and, you, and, and you read all of them. Yeah. You say, wow, this is really good. Meet them where they are and then draw them to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how has being a father and separately a husband separately uh, impacted your work? Um, I love my family. I I I, <laughs> I have a I have a little quip that I say about my wife. I say, uh, you know, being tolerated can really hurt when you get that from your partner until you realize what a piece of work you are. And then it's a gift. (laughs) (laughs) I mean that, I mean, well, you seem really likable. Oh, trust me. You know, you know, you know, if you want a dad or a husband who's organized, (laughs) give me a break. So, um, but it's, uh, and I adore my, my wife, my children. I have three grandchildren three and a half and under, and, and I get to see them every day. And uh, I'll share something with you. I, 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 it just came to me. Uh, having dropped out of medical school twice, you know, even when I, it looked like I was going to make it through and maybe have a career, uh, I uh, was going to get to me. Um, I still had, I was still haunted by, well, you're going to drop out again? And I remember when I finally dropped out for the second time and I came back, I not only finished medical school and finished psychiatry training, I went eight years without without taking a sick day because I was afraid, oh, if I, if I canceled a day, I would become a dropout again. I mean, I was... I was seeing patients with 104 temperature vomiting between them because I didn't want to take a chance. But I remember when we had our first child, I thought to myself, uh, I just want them to grow up and not be embarrassed by their dad. I didn't know that whether they'd be proud of me, but I just wanted them to grow up and not be embarrassed by me because, you know, there was still that part of me that was embarrassed. It makes for a nice story, but there's still the part of me that's embarrassed that I dropped out twice. Uh, and I remember, and my oldest daughter is now 40, and uh, uh, my kids are great, and what's even great is they have each other's backs. And they're, they're just, and my wife gets most of the credit because a lot, a lot of that is details, and you can tell I'm all over the place. <laughs> and and it was interesting, uh, I think, I, I remember looking into my oldest daughter's eyes when she was about 
seven months or something and she's really making eye contact you know i mean you know so she's not just a blob she's like oh hi oh she's daddy and i looked into her eyes and it was a truth detector and what she was saying to me is when i grow up to be 18 do not be anyone that i'm ashamed of or embarrassed by and that's what her eyes were telling me and so i've done my best to live that yeah. How do we, knowing that you've got grandchildren now, what can we do to make sure these kids never reach that point where they feel like they're so disconnected or in that state of despair? Well, well here's, here's something that's interesting, uh, because nothing I've said so far has been. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> uh, I know there are some haters out there and say, you egomaniac, I'm glad you caught yourself. Uh, but um, yeah, I wasn't close to my grandparents geographically. And, and so something I've done with my grandchildren is when I'm with them, I want to bathe them in something Eric Erickson called basic trust. So he, he, he came up with seven or eight stages of psychosocial development. And the first one is, you know, do you trust the world or do you distrust it? Albert Einstein said, you know, one of the most, the biggest decision you'll ever make in life is whether the world is safe or not. And so my children, they're busy. You know, they're working, they're juggling, they're, you know, they're wanting to make sure the basics are being taken care of. But as a grandparent, I don't have to do that. So there'll be times when I'm with my grandchildren and I'll look into their eyes like I'm looking into your eyes and 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 I can hold your eyes. Mm. See, right now, I can, mm. I can move wherever I want. I'm sure the sound engineer is saying, get back, get back, get back to the mic. <laughs> sit still. Sit still. <laughs> sit still. He's a moving target. You know, but, I, but, but I would hold on to their eyes and and I could hold on to it at that young age. And, and, and my message to them is, do you know how amazed I am that you're in my life? Do you know how glad I am that you're born? Uh, and and I imagine they're saying, you know, am I going to have a good life? <laughs> if I have anything to do about it, mm-hmm. yeah. am I going to have a career? We'll work on that. <laughs> but But what I'm doing is rather than having to run, are they fed? Do we change them? I, I, and my... And my daughters used to say, you're going to do that googly eye thing with my kid? <laughs> but do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I am absolutely. there just trying to be 100% present. Yeah. And I wasn't that present with my kids. Yeah. I mean, I was a psychiatrist, but I'd run off. Uh, I'd run off to see patients. They had a nickname for me, which is very funny, but it's not funny. Their nickname for me was, uh, hi, kids, bye, kids, love you, kids. <laughs> you keep that one off the official bio. <laughs> uh, well, you heard it first there. Yeah. You heard it first at the win the day. <laughs> uh, last question before the rocket round. Uh, on your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? Um. All your eight mentors who didn't suffer fools gladly believed in you. Remember that. 
Amazing. Let's now move into the win the day rocket round. Ten questions for some quick answers. Uh oh. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? Um, this one is. I can give you a bunch of quotes. Can I give you a few quotes? Please. I, I, on episode one hundred, I was in. You know, I was the one being interviewed for that, and it was what quote inspires you the most. I think I rattled off like five. I love a good quote better than anyone, Mark. So please, I'm happy to hear them all. Okay, so here's a quote uh, by uh, Milton Greenblatt. He was a supervisor. Uh, it's in my book. Uh, Get out of your own way. Uh, first, we are children to our parents, then parents to our children, then parents to our parents, then children to our children. That summarizes it. And my, my kids would say, uh, you're already there being childish, Dad. Uh, uh, there was a uh, another one from a mentor of mine, Warren Bennis. He was so eloquent. Uh, Boredom occurs when we fail to make the other person interesting. Mm. Then one of my favorites, and by the way, if, you, if you're listening in and you ever give a talk on growth mindset versus fixed mindset, mm-hmm. This is a killer, uh, but don't attribute it to me. Attribute it to Tim Galway. Tim Galway was the first sports psychologist. Yeah. He had something called the inner in game, game of, of tennis, tennis yeah. inner game of golf. He's a friend of mine. But when you're in an audience and you want to demonstrate to them that they have a fixed mindset, you give them this quote. You say, I'm going to give you a quote that you've never heard of. Uh, first, If you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach a person to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. Oh, you're all looking at me like I'm an idiot. You're all looking at me like uh, you've heard that quote. No, 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 no. You have a fixed mindset. You got anxious. I told you you'd never heard of it. You didn't. You were impatient. Here's the whole quote. <laughs> if you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day. If you uh, teach a person to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. But if you teach a person to learn, you feed them for a lifetime and they don't have to just eat fish. <laughs> that's a gotcha that's great but there's one quote that has knocked all of them off the table by a woman named Dr. Shawnee Duperon and it's forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive mm. <laughs> mic drop that's huge try that one on. yeah yeah absolutely uh, number two morning coffee or evening wine uh well, my wife would say uh, evening wine, but she would spell it W-H-I-N-E. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a coffee drinker? Yeah, I got to tell you, two, three cups of coffee, and I just had prostate surgery, so I can have that fourth case uh, <laughs> thing, you know, without having to, I'm amazed I lasted this long. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? You're going to help the world. Number four, what book do you gift the most apart from your own? I have sort of a short attention span. Uh, so there's some recent books. One of my favorites, uh, I'm a member of Marshall Goldsmith has something called The Hundred Coaches. But he has a new book out called The Earned Life. And uh, I think it's I think it's phenomenal. And I'll just share you a little tidbit from it. One of his chapters talks about be a one-trick genius, not a one-trick pony. And he talks about, in his whole life, he became a one-trick genius by 
realizing that companies will pay a million dollars to recruit a CEO, and they have an investment in making the CEO successful. And one place where they're unsuccessful is their interpersonal behavior. And they're often not interviewed on that. They're interviewed on their technical skills. Mm -hmm. And when it turns out that a CEO might be smart, he or she, but they're terrible with people and they're exposing the company to risk, he had himself a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, a great niche. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he makes it really narrow. So when he works with top uh, CEOs, he'll say, oh, I love you, you love me, but I don't believe a word you say. Let's see what your stakeholders say. And what he gets from stakeholders is this is how narrow it is, is he gets um, uh, what is one observable behavior, not just something generic, oh, he's a terrible communicator, she's a terrible communicator, but what's one specific behavior that all of you stakeholders will agree to that if he or she does it, you'll let go of your grudge because they're not going to change everything and let's hope it has a halo effect. Uh, he always interrupts. Okay, and then he, and he'd go back to the CEO. He said, I got good news for you. You have to stop interrupting everywhere and they'll give you a second chance. Um, and... Uh, but he saw how mm. narrow he did that. Yeah. So I took that to heart. And if you go to my mm. LinkedIn profile, which is a very small part of my life, it says world's leading healthy conflict coach. And this is how I use that and how you can use it if you're listening in. Because when I put down, you know, executive coach, because I coach a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs would say, well, you know, we don't have enough money for coaching. Managers would say, he doesn't have any business background. But CEOs, if they see you as a thought leader, will be intrigued. Mm. But everything I've done fits under healthy conflict coach. Mm. I don't do conflict resolution. I'll help you. I'll help you to be able to handle any conflict in your life. And I can fit all my books in there. Talking to crazy, get out of your own way, just listen. But but that's just a sample of the book. Mm. And offline, you know, I'll help you with that because I think it's such a great exercise. So if you're listening in, what is the what is your one trick genius that differentiates you from the world? Mm, for sure. I love it. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Oh, wow. Uh, <clears throat> it didn't become my superpower. Uh, I, uh, you know, be, because I had sort of a, you know, rocky early life. And, and plus, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a product of the 60s. You know, I went to UC Berkeley during all the uh, Vietnam War. So what I developed was an incredible uh, sarcasm and cynicism. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it was a cover-up. But I could get away with it because I could be so, so exceedingly funny, but I could cut you up. But it was all a cover-up. And, and way back then, it was okay to say, well, if you care about anything, you're a fool. And it's totally flipped into, um, unless I care about something, I'm not going to do it. Mm. So I don't know if that's a vulnerability, mm. but yeah. you know. You know, it's, it's, for sure, for it's sure. It's in keeping with my tangential answers to your questions. <laughs> I love it. Uh, number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Oh, 
here's another tip. Was this a nine-hour interview? <laughs> uh, so this is, oh, it just came up. I write, I'm on the founding expert forum member for Newsweek. So a new article just came out, and it, it basically says uh, one of the best ways, what, what my biggest tip for dealing with failure is I learned this when I was a psychiatrist in the emergency room. And so whenever I fail, I say to myself, put yourself on a 72-hour hold and don't do anything to make it worse. Because what I've discovered, and I do this in my presentations, and I'm sure you would agree with it, that when I've asked people who've had a number of breakthroughs in their life, I ask them, how, how frequently was the breakthrough preceded by a breakdown that was not a happy thing? And the vast majority of people say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to go through that breakdown, but because of it, I had the breakthrough. Mm. And here's the problem. When you have a breakdown or a failure, we're tempted to do things to cope, to make us feel better for the moment, get drunk, eat too much, yell at someone, smash something. But then the embarrassment is so much, we have to then apologize and we can miss the breakthrough. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's what I say. Okay, this, you don't like this? Don't do anything for 72 hours yeah. to make it worse. Because we used to put people on a 72-hour hold, and even though we'd medicate them, I had the feeling that, you know, just the 72 hours keeping them safe, the impulse is going to pass. Yeah, yeah. It's a great lesson. Uh, number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? I am done with male leaders in the world. I would sit. I would love to speak to Angela Merkel. Mm. I just, um, and one of the reasons I I don't really believe or trust male leaders is most male leaders come from a background of sports, and they're too they're too committed to winning and not losing. Now, women don't like to lose, but any woman who's a mother and has an infant having a temper tantrum in the local supermarket, that's something she's not going to win. So I think women are used to losing. Uh, now that said, if you're listening in and you're a woman, don't you let anyone bully you at work. Mm -hmm. Don't you let anyone take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. you, you. You stand up for yourself. But I think there's something inherent about women where they're just trying to get stuff done. You know, they're just trying to figure out what will work. And whereas, you know, and so Angela Merkel, I would love to. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? Realizing that there's some things or something that I might have a superpower in. And that six degrees of separation to the left or right, I can be incredibly incompetent. <laughs> so I'm doing my best to find people who are very competent in those areas, six degrees to the left or right of me, but also love it. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, uh, uh, I so appreciate those people uh, because I realize how helpless I am without them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and I, I probably go over backwards because I, I think I'm getting the better deal. And they, they say, 
you know, would you stop being so thankful, Mark? <laughs> oh, but I couldn't do it. I'd just screw it up. <laughs> Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Well, we're in the process of it. And if people want to weigh in, um, I've always wanted to see if we could lessen suicide, and especially in teenagers and young adults. And and all the credit goes to this friend of mine whose son died. Uh, what he's created, and I'll send it to you, um, I think it's going to change the landscape because, because if you're a parent watching this, you're, you're going to have a different relationship with your child. Mm. So, uh, so that's on the bucket list and that's, yeah, I'm very hopeful about that. Yeah. Love it. And final question. What's one thing you do to win the day? I'm a learn it all, even though I come off as a know it all in these podcasts. <laughs> every day I wake up and I'm excited. I say, I can hardly wait to find out what I learned today. And at the end of the day, I ask myself, what did you learn today that you didn't know? It's one of the reasons I have a podcast. And so I'm using the podcast. Um, and I'll have you on it, but you know, it's in the top 0.5%, which is pretty good. Zero social media. I don't have a team. I get 25 requests to be on it a week. Um, and, uh, and I learn from people and the range of people is everyone from Larry King to Jordan Peterson to Susan Kane to James Whitaker, a, <laughs> a, a, a future podcast guest. So I just, uh, every day I learn something. Yeah. I put that in my morning journal. I did that recently. I just added a lesson at the very bottom. This is part of the template. What's the lesson from the last 24 hours? Yeah. It's huge. Uh, well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Dr. Mark Goulston. We'll link to all of these on in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Mark Goulston. Grab a copy of all of his amazing books on Amazon and visit his website, markgoulston.com. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate um, you know, all of the insightful and candid things that you have, have shared. I have no doubt that we will change many lives around the world from this conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you for the beginning of a friendship. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win the Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today. So drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. And if you found value in the Win the Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win the Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. <laughs>